Well, now we will dismiss those who are still going to children's church, ages three to kindergarten. Feel free to head back and join your teachers. So age three to kindergarten, and if you're visiting, if you have kids, you are free to send them back or to keep them with you. It is up to you, so you're not obligated by any means. But for those who are heading back, feel free. For those staying behind, for the big kids, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. This is where we'll be this morning, Malachi, chapter 2. In your English Bibles, Malachi is the last book of the Bible before the New Testament, before Matthew. So if you go to Matthew and just turn back a couple pages, you'll find Malachi. If you hit Zechariah, you've gone too far. Malachi chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 10 through 16. And uh, for those of you who are visiting, we've been going through Malachi. Malachi is one of those hard books. I've heard it said before that... Soft words produce hardened people, and hard words produce softened people. And Malachi is full of hard words, but our prayer is that these hard words to Israel, and as we apply them to us, would soften us uh, for hearing the Lord and applying what the Lord has to say. If you want, I invite you to stand with me. If you're willing and able, stand with me as we read Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16. I'm reading out of the ESV, Malachi 2, 10 through 16, which says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one, the portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You may be seated. Our Father and God, in prayer this morning is simple. May your words help us to be faithful. Faithful to you because you are a faithful God. So we pray this morning that you would teach us, train us, make us a faithful people. Those of us in this room, those watching, those who are not here with us, 
and kids and children's church, all of us, may you make us a faithful people to our covenant Lord. Amen. I don't think it's too critical to say that our world has made a mess of marriage. I don't think I have to make that case convincingly. I think it's something we all recognize. All you have to do, I thought about running through a bunch of examples, but that would be more discouraging than anything. But we can look to our political leaders. We can look to the celebrities of our culture. Look to Hollywood actors who trade in spouses for younger and younger models. We can look outside the church. We can look inside the church and be discouraged about the state of marriage. There are some studies that would say that divorce rates amongst evangelical Christians are just as high as divorce rates outside the church. I'll speak to that in a little bit, but it's not hard to look around and be discouraged about the state of marriage in our world. I say that just to highlight that the holy bond of marriage is constantly under fire, and it's not just the world's problem, it is our problem. It's a sin problem. Our own sinfulness poses the biggest threat to our marriages. As a people, we don't take marriage seriously or as reverently as we ought. And that was true among the people of Israel. In the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi now addresses the issue of marriage and divorce in his own culture in Israel. The book of Malachi is a series of oracles, a series of prophetic words from God to the people that cover different topics, and they all have to do with a life of worship. And how were the people living their lives of worship before God? Were they worshiping not just by practice, not just by ritual, but with their whole heart and lives where they worshiping the Lord. And in an area where they were not worshiping the Lord, by and large, was in their marriages. So Malachi seeks to, to give a corrective word that they may live lives of worship, not only in the temple, but in their homes and in their marriages. They were unfaithful in their marriages, showing that they had been unfaithful to God. So I want to ask about faithfulness. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what does faithfulness to God require in the marriage covenant? If there's a question that will answer, it's that question. What does faithfulness to God require in the marriage covenant? What does it look like to be faithful to the Lord in the covenant of marriage? What does that require? And here in Malachi, in this third oracle in chapter 2, he gives two specific uh, answers to that question. There are two issues that are addressed. First, in verses 10 through 12, Malachi is going to address the issue of marriage and the Israelite men marrying women who were not worshipers of God, but worshipers of other idols and false gods. It was an issue of who they were marrying. And then the second issue that he deals with in verses 13 through 16 is the issue of who they were divorcing. As they took on wives from other... Places of worship, they were divorcing their own Hebrew wives and sending them out and treating them cruelly. So the first issue is who they're marrying. The second issue is who they're divorcing. As he addresses these two topics, Malachi will answer, what does faithfulness to God require in the covenant of marriage? So first in verses 10 through 12, essentially Malachi tells them, don't be faithless in entering marriage. 
If you want to summarize verses 10 through 12, you could summarize it that way. Don't be faithless when entering marriage. Be faithful in who you marry. Be faithful in how you marry and why you're marrying. Don't be faithless in entering marriage. That's uh, the word, the command from Malachi that comes out of verses 10 through 12. Let me read them for you again. Verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So what's the central problem here? The central problem is shown in verse 11. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. That is the issue that is being addressed. Judah, the the, the people of Israel, the Judahites, the Israelites, have profaned the holy place of God. In Hebrew, it literally leads to the holiness of God. They have profaned the holiness of God. What does profane mean? You might know the word profanity. We won't list any. But what does the word profane mean? What does it mean to profane? Uh, Yesterday, my my family and I, my parents are in town, and we went to the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. If you've never been there, go. It's awesome. So we were walking around and taking in the art, and I was reminded of the eco-terrorists. I don't know if you've seen what's going on eco-terrorists and protest to our lack of response to climate change, throwing paint and defaming masterpieces of art across the world. You've seen that. So that is an example of profaning something. Taking something that is sacred and hollowed ground and corrupting it, destroying it, throwing paint on it. It's profaning. And that's what the Israelites were doing to the holy place, to the sanctuary of God, to the place of worship. They're profaning the place of worship. How? In their marriages. And specifically, who they were marrying. Notice here, this is a word to men. Men were the ones who were active in marrying and divorcing. In that culture, it was a more patriarchal culture. And men had the power to divorce or send away and had the primary responsibility in marrying. So this is a word to men primarily because they were the active agents. And the word to men is, you are marrying the daughters of foreign gods. They should have known better. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 7. And the law which prohibits this kind of marriage. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4 says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Now I want to carefully unpack what the problem is here. This was a matter of worship. Scripture told the covenant people of Israel, do not marry the daughters of foreign nations. Why? Because they worship other gods. 
In that time and place in that culture, nations were often tied to God. So the, the Babylonians had Marduk, their god, the Babylonian god. And the Moabites had Chemosh, who was the Moabite god. And people of different nations had different gods they worshipped. So it was an issue of worship. Don't marry the daughters of foreign gods because they will turn your heart away to follow those other gods. I want to be careful about this. It is not an issue of ethnicity. I want to clarify this because Christians throughout history and this is a problem amongst more conservative-leaning groups today, twist this verse or twist these passages like this and say, oh, well, people should not mix with other kinds. And they twist what the Scripture is saying, and there are some out there who are teaching things like this, where, you know, people of a certain skin color, they should kind of stick with people of a certain skin color. And they twist what this passage is saying, say that that's what the Bible teaches, you got to you know, stay within your own tribe. That is a demonic teaching, that is a false teaching and is not from Scripture. It is not scriptural or biblical. This is not about skin color or ethnicity. It's about worship. And I want to make that distinction clear. In fact, we have examples in Scripture of that distinction. Can you think of somebody who was a daughter of a different land, yet married into the covenant family of Israel and was applauded and in fact was in Jesus' own genealogy. We know Ruth. Who was Ruth? A Moabite. The very kind of people where God says, well, don't marry their daughters. And yet, in the book of Ruth, her marriage to Boaz and Israel is applauded. Why? What did Ruth do? She became an Israelite. My God, or your God, will be my God, your people, my people. She was grafted in. She might be a Moabite by ethnicity, but she's an Israelite by faith and part of the covenant people. In the Exodus, Israelites left Egypt. What happened when they left Egypt? Who went with them? Egyptians. Egyptians went with the Israelites and became part of the people. How do we know? They were circumcised, celebrated the Passover. They became Israelites. They were grafted in and became part of the covenant people of God. So they were celebrated as Israelites and moved forward in that community. So those are examples of people from other ethnicities of the nations, but they become part of the covenant community, and that's what's important. So Scripture applauds that. Can you think of a counterexample, an example that goes the other way? There's one chief culprit of marrying Daughters of other gods and his heart being turned away from that. King Solomon. As king, he was told, do not do this. Do not amass wives for yourself because they'll turn your heart away. That's what he did and that's what happened. Probably for political allegiances to secure alliances with other nations, King Solomon and his right married daughters of other nations who worshipped other gods. And what happened was, it drew his heart away into idolatry. That is where he went wrong. And that's what Malachi 2 is talking about. In fact, what's probably going on was the men in Israel were marrying women of other nations to secure political alliances. As the Israelites came back from captivity in Babylon, they were a weak people surrounded by strong nations. There would be pressure to make alliances 
allegiances with other nations, to keep peace. How do you keep peace? We'll marry each other. There would be political pressure. But here, God convicts them. He says, do not do it. Ian Duguid is a commentator, and he puts it plainly. Here is the sin of Israel. To marry someone outside the covenant community is faithlessness to God. That's how God speaks about it, Malachi 2. We have one Father, one Creator. We have the same God. And his point is, we as Israelites, we have one covenant Lord. And if we are his people, we should love each other and love God by maintaining this commitment to our covenant Lord, our covenant worship. We are his people. So the Lord says, if you are not going to maintain faithfulness in who you marry in the, inside the covenant community of God, if you're going to let your hearts be uh, turned away to other gods and worshiping other gods because of marriage, then let that person be cut off. The Lord is serious about this. So let them be cut off from Israel. Outside of the covenant people. It's a strong word, a strong warning, and I will say today, it's a strong word we need. And here I am going to sound old-fashioned, I may sound offensive to some of you, but this is a word for us and for you as a single person. If you are single here, this is a word for you. Whether you are widowed, whether you are divorced, whether you are of marrying age, whether you are a child... If you're a kid here today, this is a word for you from God. Take care in who you marry. It is one of the biggest decisions of your life. It's not the biggest decision. The biggest decision you will make in your life is which Lord you follow and who will be your Lord. One of the bigger decisions is who will you marry? Who will be united to you? And the word for Christians from Malachi 2 is marry somebody, be united to somebody who also worships the Lord, who's within the covenant community. I'll put it plainly. Don't marry non-believers if you are a believer. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Faithfulness to God requires you, would ask of you, that you would marry somebody who is also a follower of Jesus Christ. I know the pull of marriage is strong. I know singleness is challenging. It is challenging to be unwed. And there is a temptation, especially the longer you are single, to just marry anybody, maybe, who, who just will look at you. I was fortunate that somebody did. I was able to get married. This is by God's grace, totally. The pull of marriage is strong. The temptation is to have other factors. Well, I'm going to care about how they look. I'm going to care about the kind of the, the hobbies they're into and maybe career paths, all that. And those will be important. The temptation is, well, faith is just such a hard thing to figure out, so I'm just not going to worry about that. But you, if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to glorify God in all things, and that includes your marriage. If you have a husband who says, Jesus is everything to me, and a spouse, a wife who says, Jesus is nothing to me, that is going to make your life of worship very difficult. Not impossible, but difficult. Union is difficult when you have two different lords. And you might say, well, they'll become a believer. And they might. But flirt to convert is not a great strategy overall. It's not one that's biblically prescribed per se. 
Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians 7. He talks about the situation of somebody who's converted. You have two non-believers, and somebody who's converted becomes a Christian. And the background here, what Malachi 2 is saying, don't marry a non-believer, somebody who's not part of the covenant, that is why the question was raised to Paul for these Christians, do I need to divorce my spouse now? So it was a real question, and they're trying to be faithful to what the Old Testament prescribed. And Paul says to them, no, if you're already married, stay in your marriage. We'll talk about that soon. So, do not hear me saying, divorce your non-believing spouse. It's a word for single people. Marry somebody who is a believer. I don't know if I can stress enough how important that is and how many different ways it will impact your life, who you're married to, how you raise your kids, how you worship together. I've counseled couples before. One was a believer, one was not. And I've told them, one of two things is going to happen. Either the non-believer will become a believer, and if so, praise God, from my perspective as a pastor, I'm praising the Lord. Or the believer, their life of worship will be hampered. Generally speaking, that's usually what's going to happen. It's just very difficult. It's a reflection of your faith and who your Lord is. Who is your Lord? If it doesn't matter who the other person worships, then I would say it might be that God is not your Lord, and that's not what's most important to you. It's a difficult thing to serve multiple masters. The Israelites were faithless in who they were marrying, and they were marrying people who worshipped other gods and started worshipping other gods because of it. That's the first issue. The second issue was divorce. Verses 13 through 16. Malachi calls them, don't be faithless in entering marriage, and then he says, don't be faithless in ending marriage. That's the point of verses 13 through 16. Don't be faithless in ending marriage. They were divorcing their first wives, sending them away, and taking on new wives. And Malachi will condemn them for this. Don't be faithless in ending marriage. Look at verse 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Verses 14 and 15 tell us the sin of the Israelites in their marriages. They were sending away their first wives. They were unfaithful to the covenant promises they made. The word for divorce in verse 16 quite literally means send out and dismiss. That's what they were doing. They were taking on new wives and sending away, sending out the old wives, the first wives, the wives of their youth, their Israelite wives, leaving them helpless, insecure, and at risk. You may know there was 
in Jesus' time, as Jesus is ministering, there is a debate going on around divorce amongst the Israelites. Based on Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, you can read that in your own time. For the sake of time, I won't get into that. But there, there is a debate going on amongst the leaders of Israel about divorce, and particularly around the question of when could, under what circumstances could, a husband send away his wife in divorce? There were some amongst the religious leaders in Israel who, because of their understanding of the Old Testament, thought that a husband could send away his wife in divorce, divorce her, basically for any reason at all. It's kind of for the men, a no-fault divorce. If the man found anything wrong whatsoever in his wife, he was free under the law to divorce her and send her away. There were some who had that conviction. There were others, I think particularly amongst the Pharisees, who had a more strict and I think correct interpretation that Deuteronomy 24 was saying that a husband could only divorce his wife in a few special cases, particularly in indecency or adultery of some type of sexual immorality. That was the case under which a husband could divorce his wife. And there's a debate going on. Jesus enters into the debate and actually answers the question for us. Do you remember this? In Matthew 19, you can turn there if you want, leave your finger here, turn to Matthew 19. In Matthew 19.3, Jesus is asked the question, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is any cause divorce lawful? Does the husband have the right to send away the wife under, for any reason at all, under any cause? Jesus answers the question in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 9. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Do you see how Jesus has responded to their debate? Under what circumstances can a man divorce his wife? Jesus wants to go further back. Let's go before the law first. Let's think about the foundational principle of marriage in creation. God made two one. So before we have any debate about laws, let's start here. Marriage is a union between male and female, a God-ordained union, and you are one in marriage. So that is your starting point for how to understand this. What God has separated, let no man, or what God has joined, let no man separate. So from the beginning, divorce is never the ideal. However, because of sin, in the law, divorce was not commanded, as some said, it was allowed. It was permissible in some cases. So divorce is never mandated in the law, but it is allowed. And someone can divorce righteously under the law. Why? Well, in certain cases of sin and breaking the covenant, as Jesus notes, the instances in which divorce is permissible are few. 
Jesus notes adultery. In the case of sexual morality, adultery. Divorce is permissible, not mandated. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 will also add in cases of abandonment, which I think would include extreme abuse and neglect. In those instances, divorce is permissible, but not mandated. That's the heart of the matter. And now consider what the people of Malachi were doing. Sending their wives away because they found new ones. They were being unfaithful, and therefore unfaithful to God. And because of it, God was not accepting their worship. They were crying at the altar, what one commentator called hypocritical tears. Crying before God, why are you not answering our prayers? Why are you not responding to our worship? How come you do not accept our worship? And the answer is from Malachi, start treating your wives faithfully, and I might respond to you. That, that sentiment is actually reflected in 1 Peter. We're going to get there in the fall. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. What Peter is saying is, husbands, love and honor your wives. If you don't, your prayers will be hindered. And I think what he's saying there is, God ain't going to listen to your prayers. God's not going to accept your worship if you are mistreating your spouses. But the people are covering the altar with tears, wondering why God wasn't listening. This is actually, I think, an allusion to a pagan practice. It was a pagan, uh, non-Jewish practice to go and cry and mourn and weep and wail on the altar so that God would be kind to them. It was a way of trying to appease God through misery. Ezekiel actually uh, references this, that there's an angel showing the prophet Ezekiel what the abominations that were going on in the temple. Had the temple been desecrated? And an angel shows Ezekiel women weeping and wailing in worship to another god. Ezekiel eight fourteen through 15. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz, who's a Babylonian god. They're weeping and wailing for this Babylonian god at the temple of the Lord on the altar. They said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. This is an abomination, this worship of other gods. Weeping and wailing. And this is kind of what the Israelites are doing. Weeping and wailing, wondering why God wasn't accepting their worship. And God is saying, get your lives in order, and then we'll talk. This is something we do frequently. Uh, Our kids do this. We as parents say, here's a command. Clean your room. Straightforward command. Weeping and wailing and crying. I'm tired. And did you see what my brother did? And I'll do this and this and this. Do you have any negotiating children? I don't want to do what you said, but I'll do this and this and this. And also, we do this. Kids do this. We do this in our worship. God, I know what you're telling me to do, but I don't want to do that. What if I did this instead? And we play that bartering game with God, negotiating. I know you're calling me uh, to get my life of worship in order. I know there's a specific thing you've been calling me to do, a specific sin you wanted me to address. But how about if I just serve in church really hard? How about if I read more books, read more Bible, uh, do more service? And let's not worry about the thing that I know you're convicting me of over there. But I'll do this and make it up to you that way. 
and we try to negotiate with God. That's what's going on here. God, we don't want to worry about the divorce thing, but we'll weep and wail before you. And how come you're not accepting our worship? And God says, that's not what I was asking for. That's why Hosea 6.6 says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He wants hearts of worship, lives of worship before him, not empty ritual, empty sacrifices. What did God really want out of their marriage? He tells us here. He wanted grandkids. Right? This is the, the heart of every uh, father, mother of bride and groom. You got married? All right. When grandkids coming? I think this should be the heart of churches also. All right. You got a church? When you making kids? What God desires from their covenants is for them to be faithful to him, faithful to one another. Why? So that they might produce godly offspring. That's God's desire from the beginning. What is his desire from the beginning from Genesis 1? That the earth may be filled with his image bearers worshiping him. As the reason Israel existed, that they might produce worshipers, godly offspring, bringing him praise. They were disobeying the plan, worshiping other gods. So he leaves them with a warning in verse 16. I'm not going to get into it because it's too technical and I'm not sure I fully understand it. <laughs> in verse 16, there is a translation issue that has stumped commentators and scholars. So some of your Bibles, half your Bibles, are going to say, I hate divorce. In verse 16. Some of your Bibles are going to say, he who hates and divorces his wife. And there's a question of, is this God speaking? Is he the subject saying he hates divorce? Or is this talking about the men who have hated their wives and divorced them? I, I don't know what the answer to that question is. Either way you read it, the point is, these divorces were detestable to God, and by them, the men had done violence, covering their garment with violence, it says, which is a way of saying, you got blood on your hands. Garment, covering with a garment was a picture of marriage engagement. Go back to Ruth. To cover that garment with violence is a way of saying you've done violence, you've blood in your hands in your marriages. So here's the command in verse 16. Guard your spirit. Do not be faithless in this. Guard your spirit. Watch over your heart. Do not be faithless in your marriages. And that's the word for us today in our marriages. For those of you who are married, guard your spirit. Guard your marriage. Guard your heart. Do not be faithless to your God. Do not be faithless to your spouse. Your faithfulness to your husband or your wife is a reflection of, an indication of your faithfulness to the Lord. And there's an extra caution here. Treat your spouse unfaithfully and you may make an enemy of God himself. Divorce is hard. Some of you in this room have been through this. I think all of you would say, under the best of circumstances, 
And if you had, if you walked through divorce faithfully, and I think you can do that, you can be a faithful partner, and sometimes in this broken and fallen world, the choice is not given to you as to whether the marriage ends. Sometimes the marriage is ended for you, and that's a hard thing. And even if you are faithful and you are truly at no fault in divorce, even then, and maybe more so then, divorce is painful and dramatizing. Studies have shown that divorce is more traumatizing and painful than death. It is a difficult thing. God wants to spare that, or spare you from that. So he's calling the men in particular, married people, guard your spirit, be faithful to your spouse. And here's the good news. I'll say this. I don't think this command is that hard. What is God actually asking them to do? If you're a believer, you're part of the covenant people, marry a believer, part of the covenant person, part of the covenant people of God. And if you're married, stay faithful. And I want you to know this, because we talk about how difficult marriage is, and it is difficult. But hear this also. It's not impossible. It's actually not hard to be faithful to your spouse. It's not an impossible task that the Lord has given you. It's not some pipe dream. There are dozens and dozens of couples in this room who have remained faithful and done so for decades and decades. There are couples who have experienced unfaithfulness but stayed together. I want to tell unmarried people, marriage is good. It's actually fun. It's enjoyable. I don't just love my spouse. I actually like being around her. We're not great at going on dates, um, partially because we're cheap. But also, it doesn't take that much for us to, to keep our relationship up because we just like being around each other. So hanging out and watching Top Chef at home is kind of good enough most nights. It's not terribly difficult in most circumstances to remain married. And by and large, the people of God are, generally speaking, faithful to their marriages. So I... I mentioned the stats earlier about evangelical Christians divorce at the same rate as the general population. Well, if you look into it, which we always have to do with these studies, who is claiming Christianity? Because there's a difference between those who just claim Christian on a form and those who actually participate in the life of the church and live a life that resembles what Scripture calls of Christians. So uh, for those who are active in their church the divorce rate was 27 to 50% lower than for non-church goers. On the other hand, nominal Christians, those who simply call themselves Christians but do not actively engage with the faith, are actually 20% more likely than the general population to get divorced. So you see the difference there according to that article, according to that study uh, of a Barna survey? Those who are actively engaged in the Christian life and a life of worship are far less likely to be divorced. Why? Because their worship to God is reflected in their devotion and faithfulness to one another. But those who simply check the box Christian but are not actively engaged in actually worshiping the Lord are more likely to get divorced. 
But those who actively worship the Lord are more faithful to the Lord are more likely to faithfully love their spouses as well because the two are tied together. Those who are faithless before God set themselves up to be faithless toward husbands and wives. Those who are faithful tend to be faithful. Here's a word as we close. For those of you and those of us who have made a mess of your marriage. Maybe you've been divorced and maybe it was your fault. For those of you who have broken your covenants, who have been at fault, been faithless in your marriage, I want you to know you are amongst friends here. Why? While many of us in this room, I hope a lot of us in this room but at the end of our days can say we've been faithful, none of us can raise our hands and say we've been perfect. There's not a single person in this room who can raise their hand and say, I have been 100% totally wonderful and perfect to my spouse. I never failed my spouse. All of us in this room can stand before you and say, we have messed up our covenant time and time again, but by the grace of God and the grace of the other person, we've stuck it out. That's how this happens. It's only by grace. So if you're here and you feel like, I have broken things in my marriage, I've messed up, just know you're amongst equals. We are all in that camp. You say, well, I've always been perfectly faithful. I just encourage you to read Jesus and how he talks about people who even look at somebody else lustfully. All of us stand guilty in our covenants. Here's the good, good news. We have a faithful husband. There's a reason marriage is so important to God. He actually pictures his relationship to his people as a marriage. God the husband, his people the bride. And that is all throughout scripture. And for those of you who are divorced, guess what? You're in good company, so is God. Jeremiah 3.8 God actually sends a certificate of divorce to his people, he says. God knows what it's like to have a broken marriage covenant. But thanks be to God, he sent a perfect spouse, a husband, who saves his bride, redeems his bride, purifies his bride, washes her, makes her perfect and holy so that on that wedding day they stand together united, perfect and pure. We often are faithless in our covenant, but God is always faithful, and Jesus Christ, his son, is the perfect husband. And one day, there's going to be a celebration. You can read about it in Revelation 19. It's called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb, where Jesus Christ, by his blood, will have given it to the bride to make herself pure and white. Only by his grace. What does faithfulness to God require in the marriage covenant? Faithfulness to God requires faithfulness in marriage. And the good news is that when we are not faithful, God is for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ, the church. In that context, 
our marriages will be redeemed. Would you pray with me? And Father, it's by your grace that we stand, uh, by your grace that we uh, live in the, in the covenant of marriage. And not everybody in this room will be married. Uh, not everybody in this room will experience uh, maybe a faithful marriage covenant. And yet anybody in this room, if they're in Jesus Christ, will know the faithfulness of God, will know what it's like to be known and loved To have a faithful covenant partner who will never betray, never send away, never divorce, never dismiss, but will always bring us back in full unity and love and intimacy. And that is the hope of the gospel that we have. May we rest on that and out of your love, because you have loved us, love one another well in all of our relationships, and especially in our marriages, Lord. Thank you for your grace and kindness. Amen.